0: Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Welcome to Crosspoint once again. So glad that you're here. And my name is Kyle. I am one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd love to get the chance to do that. And today, we are going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, and we are going to be starting at verse 30. We're going to read through verse 30 all the way to the end of the chapter, which is verse 50. And if you have been with us at Crosspoint for the last little while, we've been working through the Gospel of Mark. We feel like it's so imperative to have, especially now, to have such a clear picture of who Jesus is, how he talked, how he handled situations, and what he's called us to be and how he's called us to live, and it's so, so vital that we do that. And uh, what you may have noticed, uh, really since Christmas, I feel like, um, Jesus' death and resurrection are nearing closer and closer, and it feels like the truths that Jesus is communicating, especially to his disciples, they're getting more and more difficult. Um, they're, they're calling us to greater and greater surrender, and I think today is no exception to that. Uh, that What we're going to walk through today is, it requires some some change in our perspective on how we see things. And uh, what I want you to do first, though, as you are maybe turning to Mark chapter 9, or if you've already, if you've already made it there, that's great too, I want to do a little bit of like a thought exercise, I guess, to start us off. I would encourage you, just take a moment and pull up the face of a person that you would say is great. Uh, a person that would in, encompass and encapsulate greatness in your mind. And then as a follow-up, you maybe have that face right in front of you. Just don't think too hard at it. Just the one that pops into your mind. And then maybe think through, okay, what are the characteristics that make up this person that I would look at and think is great? Now, if I brought five of you up onto the stage this morning and was like, hey, tell me the, the image, the face that popped into your mind and the characteristics that make that person great. What's really interesting is I think that we'd probably have five different answers. It's interesting is something that seems so uh, black and white as what is someone who is great and someone who is not great that we could all have slightly different opinions of what makes up greatness. Um, And I I think the reality is, and as I've been sitting on this, I've been more and more convinced of this. I think the reality is that what we believe about greatness, about success, about fulfillment and purpose, what we believe about that, I think, is so heavily influenced by outside factors. I think it's heavily influenced by maybe the authoritative voices in our lives, uh, the environment that we live in, the formative years of our lives. Uh, the experiences that we have had, all of those things contribute to our view of what makes someone great. And I think that they can look very different than each other. So like, for an example, if I were to bring a student like a, a teenager or a young adult, and let's let's get real stereotypical. Like a teenager, young adult from like LA, let's say, and bring him up and said, "Okay, what's the face that pops into your mind when you think of greatness? And what are the characteristics?" Almost certainly, you'd you'd get answers like, "Well, there's this YouTube personality or this TikToker who's super famous or the social media influencer, maybe like an actor or celebrity or something." Okay, so what makes up? Uh, what characteristics make up that person? Well, they're really well-known and everyone knows them and, 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 and loves them and they have wealth and they kind of get to live this luxurious life and, and experience all these awesome experiences. And that's kind of like the, that might encapsulate that might like the stereotypical uh, great person maybe in Southern California, let's say LA area. What's interesting is I think most students or young adults would be very willing to say that that's the case. Compare that to like where I grew up and when I grew up in Wyoming. Being known was not a sign of greatness. In fact, the less people that knew you was actually like a sign of greatness where, where I grew up. And it's interesting because wealth was not that important, but having total control over what you do have, that, that made you great. The, the autonomy, the full control, being able to do what I want when I want to because I have total control over it. In, in a place like Wy- Wyoming, like emotion, like hi- being highly emotional was not a characteristic of greatness, you know, being really tempered and kind of non-emotional, being hard, being tough, like those were the characteristics that would make someone great. And I think how then can greatness in my mind look so different than greatness in someone else's mind? I think what it should do is it should uh, draw us to the reality that maybe we build our ideas of greatness off of totally outside factors. And if that's true, then maybe, maybe there's a different way. Maybe the, 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 the things that we thought were so sure that would make someone great, we don't need to hold on to quite so tightly. That's exactly what Jesus does in our passage today, is he says, I know that there's all this influence in your life that has contributed to what you think equals greatness or success or fulfillment or purpose, but I'm here to tell you it's something different and it's something radically different. And so what I want to encourage us to do this morning is I think this is one of those messages where it'd be really easy to just do a lot of head nodding during. Because if you're in here and you're a Christian, like, you know where this is headed. You put other people first. You be a servant. You know where this is going if you're a Christian. So the easy thing for us to do is just be like, yeah, yeah, totally. Yep, yep, hmm And then we walk out those doors and we go run our businesses and we go engage with our families and we go talk with our friends and people we have relationship with and we can nod our heads all we want, but that isn't translating to action outside. And I don't think Jesus is looking for people to just think kingdom thoughts. I think he's looking for people to live out kingdom values. And so I would, I would encourage us, let's hold all of that very loosely. Let's resist the temptation to just nod our head and really lean into what Jesus defines as greatness and what he wants in each and every one of our lives. So let's jump into it. Verse 30. So what's happening here? Is Jesus is on the move. Uh, him and his disciples, they're traveling. And we catch up with them, and here's what it says in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. Now, generally, there was like a big crowd following Jesus around, wanting to hear from him and see him perform miracles and, you know, take food out of thin air, all that good stuff. There's usually a big crowd, but Jesus kind of, you get the sense he's taking some back roads because he wants to spend some intentional time with his disciples. And here's why. In verse 31, it says, for he is teaching his disciples, saying to them... The Son of Man, which is Jesus, is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So, this is the second of three times where Jesus tells his disciples, in no uncertain terms, Guys, here is the plan. I know you have it in your head that I came to overthrow the Roman government and kick down the doors and set up my kingdom right here and now. Through power and force and violence. I know that's what you think is happening, but this is the plan. I'm going to lay down my life, but in three days, I'm going to rise again. And this is actually the first time that he draws their attention to the fact that I will actually be betrayed. I will be handed over to men. And it's interesting their response. They didn't understand. They're still having a really hard time wrapping their head around this. And it says they were afraid to ask him for clarity. Now, we don't, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly why they were afraid to ask him, but If you remember, a number of weeks ago, we looked at a passage of scripture where Jesus for the first time laid out his plan to his disciples. And you may remember, Peter had a pretty intense reaction to that. He said, no, Jesus, you can't do that. We would never let that happen to you. And then Jesus has an even more intense reaction back to Peter. If you remember, he said, get behind me, Satan. So honestly, I don't really give, I'm not upset at these guys for kind of being like, I don't want another one of those situations to happen, you know? I don't know what he's up to, and I don't really understand it, so I think I'm just, just going to be quiet. I certainly don't want him to think I'm the one that's going to betray him. And so they're quiet, and they weren't in- engaging with Jesus in this conversation, but we will find that the conversation turned to some other things. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So you can totally see this scene playing out. They they get to a house in Capernaum, a lot of people believe it was even Peter's house. You know, they get in, they drop their proverbial bags, you know, kick off the sandals, start to settle in here and Jesus in his uh in his I always picture it as like a sly way, but for sure intentional way. He's kind of like, "So guys, what were you talking to on what were you talking about on the way here?" Crickets, you know? They're like, oh no, he knew what we were talking about. He knew that we were arguing about who was the greatest. And actually, he's caught us in this before. We see that in other accounts in the Gospels. And they don't don't even know what to say. They're they're embarrassed that they even were having this conversation. Why were they arguing, though? That's a good question to ask. And Scripture doesn't specifically tell us, but the context paints a pretty compelling picture. Just a, a few verses before, we saw Jesus take Peter, James, and John up the mountain for the Mount of Transfiguration story you may remember last week where Jesus showed himself in his full divinity, full glory to these three guys and then told them, hey, don't go, don't go tell anyone about this. You got to believe that bred some tension, right? I mean, of everything we know of Peter, you know that guy was walking down from the mountain being like, oh yeah, I got some juicy, juicy stuff here, yeah. And then he gets down, and the disciples are like, hey, like what happened up there? Well, you know, it was crazy, but I really shouldn't say. It's kind of a kind of a need-to-know thing, and you don't need to know. One day, maybe, maybe I'll let you in on it. Like, you know that at the very least that was going through his head, and of course that would create some tension there, some jealousy. Maybe their minds were, were uh, jumping back to the interaction they had just had before the Scripture we're reading today where they confronted this little boy who had this demon and they just could not cast the demon out. And I'm sure there was lots of bickering back and forth. Well, if you tried my idea, it might have worked or I might have been able to do this or that. Whatever their reasoning was to argue about who is the greatest, it's beginning to paint a fairly twisted picture of what they think greatness is. They think greatness is power and authority. They think greatness is force. They think greatness is exclusivity. They're painting a pretty clear picture of what they think it means to be great. And honestly, it's a picture that I think is probably very familiar to many of us. And Jesus takes this opportunity, and even in their embarrassment, he takes this opportunity to do a little bit of teaching. And so in verse 35, it says, he sat down and called the 12. He just sits down, and he says, hey, come in here, guys. And he said to them, without them even saying what they were actually arguing about, he says to them, he knows what they were thinking. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He's like, I know that you have this idea of what greatness is, but greatness in my kingdom, anyone who wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. I think it's really interesting here that Jesus doesn't rebuke them for wanting to be great. Um, we, might have, we might assume that, right? That he was like, no, you're not, you're not supposed to want greatness. No, Jesus doesn't do that. I think actually the desire to do great things and to great, make great impact in the world, it's a desire put there by God that goes all the way back to Genesis 1 where he created us to continue to put out good and great things in our partnership with God in the world. So it's not, it's not something that we shouldn't go after, but Jesus says you're going after the wrong version of it this is what greatness looks like in my kingdom. And it is very, very upside down than what you're used to. Now, I don't know what the vibe of the room was, but I imagine knowing these guys, having like seen how they react to Jesus very often, I imagine there were a few, more than a few blank stares coming Jesus' way. Like this does not compute for them. This is not what we have seen. This is not what we have experienced. This is not what we have learned. This does not make sense to us, that greatness would be achieved by putting yourself last and by putting yourself in the role of a servant. It doesn't make sense. And honestly, are we really that different? I don't think so. And almost as if Jesus catches this, this tension in them, and knows that these followers of him need a clear example of what greatness in his kingdom looks like, this is what he decides to do. In verse 36, it says, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them. They're having this very intense spiritual conversation, and Jesus chooses to take a child and come and put him right in the middle of this conversation. Now, this is really significant because children weren't held to a great place of honor In that culture, in in the ancient world, children were necessary because we needed the family lines to continue on, but it's not like they were held to a high place of honor. Um, They they weren't going to be first. In fact, there's a lot of, of historians and scholars who have decided that during that time, even in Israel, children didn't even necessarily qualify as people, not until they were a certain level of maturity or could contribute something to the family or to the culture were they even considered So, this is like the lowest of the low here. And Jesus grabs this kid and puts him in the middle as an example. This is what greatness in my kingdom looks like. A child can't do anything for you. A, A child is dependent. A child is needy. A child didn't have power or authority, but he puts this little face in front of his followers and says, I want you to think of this face when you think of greatness. In my kingdom. And then he does something that I find really compelling that I totally have missed up until this point, if I'm being honest. I love how scripture's like that. Where the more times you go back to it, the more uh, the Holy Spirit works and, and continues to show new things that were always there, but maybe you missed the time before. I I I totally assumed in this story that Jesus used this child as an example and then said, Okay, get out of here. We gotta we gotta talk like the adults now. But instead what he does, it's almost like Jesus knew that the disciples would really need this dependent little face right there in front of them to keep them on track with what he was saying. What scripture tells us, he says he brings them into his midst and then taking him up in his arms. He didn't give an example and say beat it. He scoops him up so that everything else he says is set in full view of this child, this example of greatness in God's kingdom. And I think it, it changes some how we look at the rest of the scripture. And so I wanna take a page out of Jesus' book this morning because I think we are just as easily distracted as the disciples were. I think it's so easy to let our ideas of what makes a person great or successful or fulfilled or full of purpose, it's easy to let those things creep in as we hear Jesus talk. And maybe what we need is a little face to keep us on track with what we need to hear this morning. So I'm going to try something really risky. And I'm just, I'm just telling you right now, I have no idea how it's going to go. It went okay last, last, uh, last service. And everyone was like, your kids are so good. Your kids, I'm like, what are you doing? Don't say that right now. There's a whole nother service to go. You know how badly this could go? But we're going to try it because it's pandemic world, and so we might as well try some stuff. I'm going to bring my son, Jeremiah, up here. Hey, buddy. Come here. Sorry, camera guys. Just a second. I'll be right back. This is Jeremiah, and he's my second youngest son, and uh, he's two years old. He's also the lightest of my kids, which is great for what we're doing here this morning. Otherwise, I might might be in trouble here. And uh, what I just want to do is I want to keep Jer right here. Because the rest of what Jesus said is said with a child in his arms. And so I want the rest of, as, as we read like this scripture and as we, as we look at it and as we consider what it's trying to say to us, I think it could be really helpful to keep us focused, to have this face. A face that's an example of greatness right in front of us as we walk through it. So he scoops up this child, and here's what he says. Verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus is is on a roll. He's 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 on a flow here. He's, He's laying it out that this is how greatness works in my kingdom. When you serve, when you lift up a child who can't do anything for you, That's how my kingdom works, caring for the hurting, the oppressed, the the disenfranchised, all these people who can't do it on their own. When you lift them up, you start to get what I'm about. And when you get what I'm about, you get what my father is about. And don't forget, like, this is the example right there for you to see. And Jesus is on a roll here. And then out of nowhere, John tries to completely derail the conversation. It's a super weird thing for him to say these next few verses that we are going to look at. Have you ever, have you ever known someone where you're like, you're, you're on a roll, you're talking through something important, and then they just throw in this super random comment that just derails the whole thing? Like, I work with high schoolers and middle schoolers, and so I experience that a lot, where we're, we're talking about Jesus, and they're like, so what do you think we're in a fight between Batman and Superman, huh? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> That's exactly what John does here. I don't, know, I don't know if he just felt awkward about what Jesus was getting at or if Jesus said something that like, made that pop into his head. But here's what John decides. This is what I'm going to contribute to the conversation. Verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. What? <laughs> Do you see how that doesn't connect with what Jesus was saying? I got to believe some of the disciples are looking around like, what in the world is he talking about? You can tell John is just like so proud of himself that he told that guy off and and he's like, Jesus, be proud of me. What it does is it once again just shows how difficult it is, even when confronted with truth, to shed our ideas of what makes a person great. Because in John's mind, this man couldn't be okay because he wasn't part of their crew. Being part of their team or their crew is what, what are you looking at? Ew, ew, sorry. Being part of their crew is what made them great. It's this weird off-track statement, and honestly, Jesus just isn't having it. He takes what was going to derail the conversation, and he actually twists it and turns it and makes it contribute to what he was trying to say. Here's what he says in verse 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus basically validates this guy's ministry. He's like, listen, John, this person obviously knows me or has faith in me to some degree. He's performing these miraculous works in my name. He might not have it all figured out. It might not be perfect. And I know that he's not part of your crew or your friend group or your necessarily like school of thought. But what you're doing is you're just getting distracted about things that aren't the most important. It's so easy for us to do that, right? To get stuck on all this stuff that doesn't matter that much. And Jesus draws him back to this child in his arms and says this, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. He brings it back to that idea of putting others first and be willing to be last by serving others and elevating them while bringing ourselves down. He says, don't get distracted. Focus on what matters, right? (laughs) Yep. And honestly, this is something that we see in children, is this ability to have a singular focus. Now, kids are not focused creatures, but they have a singular focus, don't they? Like like, uh, multitasking is not in their tool belt, Right? If they, if they have something in their mind, they will not let it go. Anyone who has kids knows this to be true, and it can, it can be different things. For my kids, honestly, it's ice cream. Like, if those two words get said in my house, they don't even have to be together, but if they're said separately, they notice. I can be like, I'm going to get some ice for my drink from the fridge, and then I'm going to put some cream in my coffee, and all of a sudden, like, did you say ice cream? Did you say ice cream? Like, can, we, can we go get ice cream? And they will not let it go until we either go get ice cream or they go to sleep and forget about it, right? I'm nervous even saying those words that many times with him in my arms, to be quite honest, because probably we'll have to go get ice cream after this. But, but we've all seen that with kids. They have like this singular focus, and, and, and they, they will not be deterred of it. But so often it's easy for us to lose focus and to get distracted. To be quite honest, one of the best examples I think that we could ever have is existing right now in the world around us where we get distracted and then we lose relationship and then we create divides when they're completely unnecessary. Man, Wednesday was a massive tragedy to some, way too big of a tragedy for people who say Jesus is king. And for others, it was a massive celebration, way too massive of a celebration for people say that their hope is in Jesus. And people are losing relationship and losing respect and are sinning because of their, their distraction of everything that's happening in the political realm. You know who didn't care at all what happened Wednesday? This guy. If you come up to him after the service, he might not want to talk to you because he's shy, but I guarantee it's not going to be because you, who you voted for or what you think politically. And I'm not saying it's not important for us to be present in the world that we live. It is. It's, it's, it's a call of ours. But let's not let these secondary things distract us from what's actually important. We've seen two very different approaches politically to try to seize greatness, and neither one of them looks like this. It's a distraction. The greatness in God's kingdom requires singular focus. So let's get focused. Because what we're signing up for to be part of God's kingdom is incredibly important. And that's what Jesus talks about next. Verse 42, he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So when he talks about a millstone, it's this big rock that would would grind up wheat. And there were smaller ones that were used by hand. There were larger ones that you needed like a a donkey to make work. And Jesus is talking about the big one. And he's saying, it would be better for you to have one of those attached to your neck and to be drugged to the bottom of the ocean than to cause one of these little ones who believe in him to sin. Now, it's interesting, that verse is always the verse that that we go to and we use kind of like as ammunition against all of these institutions and people that we feel like are leading our kids astray, right? It's like, oh, you health class teacher teaching my kid the world's view on sexuality and sexual practices, stuff like that, you better be careful, millstone's coming for you, you know? We're Like, oh, you science teacher teaching evolution, millstone's coming for you, you better take a swim. Like, you, you, you school teachers that are, that are teaching moral decay to my kids, a millstone's coming for you. And while I think Jesus cares intensely about actual physical children, let's look at this in context. I think it might be telling us something different here. If, if a child is an example of greatness in God's kingdom, and we are called to be like children as we pursue greatness in God's kingdom, and I think another application of this verse is that those of us who do a poor job being a good example of what greatness looks like in God's kingdom, that putting other people first, that being willing to be a servant, he's saying the consequences for that are pretty severe. Now, while I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever committed some massive atrocity to a child that would make me get a millstone around my neck and throw into the ocean, I for sure have done a poor job of setting a good example of what Kingdom greatness looks like to people. That's, that should be a sobering thought to us, church, especially those of us who've been around this thing for a while. If we talk, talk, talk about putting others first and putting ourselves last and, and being a servant to all, and then we walk out those doors and don't practice any of that, I think the consequences are pretty severe, especially for those who maybe are a little further behind. It's very important what we are doing, and we cannot. We cannot settle for anything less. Jesus takes it out of the realm of theory at this point and starts to speak explicitly to the disciples, talking directly to them about uh, the, the cost and the seriousness of embracing greatness in God's kingdom. And he goes on to tell about the worst bedtime story he could ever tell with a child in his arms. Listen to what he says here, verse 43. Jesus has a child in his arms when he's talking about this. He's, he's talking about some pretty intense, severe, kind of disturbing things. He's talking about dismemberment, which is just a weird thing to bring up when kids are in the mix. Although I will say my kids like Star Wars a lot and everybody's getting their hands chopped off in that franchise. So maybe Jesus was onto to something here, I don't know. But he's talking about this severity, this picture that honestly most people at that time would have understood that if, if a part of your body is sick, Sometimes the best thing to do is just get rid of it before it poisons the whole thing. But he doesn't just talk about dismemberment. He also references hell in here. And when when he talks about hell in this passage, the Greek word that that hell was translated from is Gehenna. And Gehenna was an actual physical place outside the walls of Jerusalem. And at the time when when Jesus was having this conversation with his disciples, it it was basically a massive dump. All of the refuse was was dumped out there. Dead bodies were dumped out there. There were fires that were continuously burning out in this valley. Uh, there were these just maggots and worms, all kinds of, of, uh, of worms that would just continue to eat everything that was dead and rotting there. And so that's gross enough, but th- that place even had a darker history. If you go back into the Old Testament, there's some Israelite kings who worship false gods, and they would they would practice child sacrifice out in that valley. And Jesus lays all this out with this image that he says is an example of greatness right in front of these disciples. But what Jesus is calling us to by bringing this up is he's, he's drawing our attention to the fact that whatever it costs you to pursue greatness in my kingdom, it is worth it. And the alternative is brutal. The alternative is destruction. Destruction. Maybe another way of saying it is Jesus is saying, go all in, recklessly, go for it. Whatever you lose is nothing compared to what you gain. Creating your own version of greatness, even though it might seem right at the time, is just not worth it. It leads to destruction. So take it seriously. Go all in. Don't mess around. Man, for some of us, we won't even cut off our... our internet signal to keep ourselves from sinning we won't we won't cut off our plans to keep ourselves from sinning we won't we won't cut off our need to be right or our freedoms to prevent us from sinning but jesus says man go all in again this is a characteristic we see in children these examples of greatness in god's kingdom because a child whatever they decide that they're about they are all about it aren't they (laughs) What's important to them, they are all in, relentlessly, radically all in with whatever is important to them. In our house, it's not a pet, it's not an outfit, it's not a toy, it's my wife, Megan. My kids absolutely adore my wife, Megan. She's the best. And honestly, it's a little frustrating sometimes because we could have the best time. I could be the coolest dad in the world. All the treats, all the games, all the toys, we're having a blast And as soon as Megan walks into the room, I'm chopped liver, you know? They are all about her. I I have literally seen two kids fighting over a toy that was so important to them, so important that they would be fighting with each other, physically fighting with each other to try to get this toy and have possession of it. And as soon as Megan walks in the door, the toy is thrown behind them, and they're running right for her, right? My son Judah is super into Legos right now. And he will spend hours meticulously building these these Lego sets and these creations. And and he spends so much time and effort on them. And he's really careful to try to protect them and, and take care of them. But literally, I've seen him as soon as he even hears the door open and Megan's walking in, he drops that Lego creation to the ground where the little kids can just tear it to pieces. But he doesn't care at all. Because he's after the thing that matters the most to him. He's all in on that lady sitting right over there. And honestly, maybe as Christians, we could use a little bit of that. Maybe we need to be a little more all-in on greatness in God's kingdom, that desire, that ability to put other people first and put ourselves last, that that conscious decision to be a servant, not just to people who can pay us back, but to anyone that we come into contact with. To be great in God's kingdom, we need to go all-in knowing that God has for us, that what God has for us is better than what we're doing on our own. A picture of the trust that you see in a kid that just jumps off the couch over and over and over again. No fear of falling, no fear of getting hurt. Man, let's, let's go all in like that. Jesus wraps up, though, by letting us know that this isn't a simple or easy road that he's called us to. Verse 49, it says, For everyone will be salted with fire. There's a lot of interpretations about what that verse actually means, but most people land on, it's it's a reference to purification. The salt was meant to preserve, fire represented trials, and so we are preserved through our trials, through our hardships. We are made like Jesus. And essentially what he's saying is this way of life is going to come with a lot of difficulty because pursuing greatness like a child in a world that consistently tells you to grow up, to throw your muscle around, to do what it takes to be able to, to do what you want, is going to be very countercultural. And it will present some difficulties, but it's worth it. Verse 50 salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus tells us commit yourself to this kind of greatness, one that serves and elevates others. And this is how you will have peace with God and with each other. This comes full circle back to where Jesus started this thing. At the very beginning of this passage. He's saying, you are going to see this kind of greatness that I'm talking about here on display very soon. Where I will put myself last as a servant to all so that you can have peace with God and peace with each other. This is what greatness looks like and I'm going to prove it to you. I said at the beginning of this thing that the temptation would be to just do a lot of nodding during this message. And so honestly, here's where the rubber meets the road. The worship team's going to come back up, and we're going to have some opportunities to respond in worship. And here's what I would encourage us to do as we sing these songs about God's faithfulness and about the work that he does and about his greatness. Here's what I would challenge us to do. First of all, let's shed our preconceived ideas of what makes someone great, of what makes us great. Instead, take Jesus at his word and exchange them for kingdom greatness. Think about where we've compromised and what needs to change. Let's keep our focus, man. Use Jeremiah's face if you need to, but get get that face of greatness into our mind and let's never depart from it. Because it's really easy to sit in this room and say, yes, that's the type of greatness that I want to live out in my life, but it's on us to to figure out how's that going to work in the business that I own. How's that going to work in the relationships that I have? How's that going to work in my online presence? How's that going to work in my marriage or in my family? See, every step of the way, I think it takes an intentional shift, not just relying on what we've seen or learned or experienced, but instead embracing this new way that Jesus has laid out to us. And maybe just the perfect place to start. If a child's a perfect example, a great example of greatness in God's kingdom, and we are to be like them, maybe the first place is to start is to do exactly this. Just like lean into our Father's shoulder, because we know that he can be trusted. Would you pray with me, and we'll have an opportunity to respond. Jesus, you're so good. You are so good. And Lord, I think we just, we take it for granted, or we get used to I don't know, just living for you halfway, but I'm just so tired of that. And and I think that you're doing something in this world, even in the middle of like a lot of difficulty, just really drawing us to an authentic life in you. And Lord, I think this is one of those areas where it might be really easy to get distracted. Lord, help us have focus. Help us to go all in by putting others ahead of ourselves by being willing to put ourselves last by being a servant to all not just with our lips not just with lip service god but with what we do and how we treat people and lord whatever consequences that brings along with it oh well because the life you laid out for us is worth it and the alternative is destruction so god i pray that you would speak to us clearly that you would give us courage and honesty to address where we're at god and that you would show us the type of greatness. That you've called us to. In your name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.